told you a few weeks ago, uh, if you're with us in our series in First John, that I've been struggling with doubts uh, about my faith last summer. And in that, uh, I was like warring against myself. So I was defending my faith to myself and also defending my doubts to myself and kind of going back and forth. And I, I spoke with a counselor friend of mine and, and uh, we're talking and he says, uh, well, if, if a person in your ch church came up to you and and we're where you are right now, like in your situation, what would you tell them? And uh, I started thinking, and I felt a little uh, stuck, like I had no words. I, I started thinking about like apologetics, and so I started thinking about, all right, how could I, what would I argue with them? What would I try to present to them? And uh, he saw the, the like confused look on my face. And so he just gently and graciously said, wouldn't it be the resurrection? Wouldn't you take them to the resurrection? And I said, shyly, yeah, you're right you're right. That, that, that would be the thing I would do. And he said, so let's talk about it. And that's what we did. And so I come to you this morning as a, a fellow pilgrim on this journey. And if you believe in Jesus, my hope for you this morning is that God's word will anchor you in the midst of chaos and confusion and doubts and struggles. And if you feel lost in doubt or you feel like you're being tempted to walk away from Jesus, I, I want this morning for the resurrection of Jesus to solidify your faith to him, to anchor you to God, that his commitment to you in the resurrection would then reinforce like still beings in your soul, your commitment to him. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to receive the good news and be filled with deep, lasting hope. So I can tell you now that I'm satisfied intellectually with the evidence of the res resurrection, but it's more than that for me. Tim Keller has said that religious people find God useful, but genuine Christians find God beautiful, and the resurrection is compelling and beautiful. I find it compelling and beautiful, and I want that for you. So Matthew 28, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you just to walk with me through this. I'm going to unpack it as I go, and I want you to see this account of Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, verse 1 of 28. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now the Gospel of Mark adds a little bit to explain like why they're going, and he, he says that they're carrying spices to anoint Jesus' dead body like, like the custom was. But they couldn't on Friday because it's so quickly he's put into the tomb and then Sabbath uh, is on Saturday. So they don't do it on Sabbath. They're not working on Saturday. So they're waiting for Sunday morning. They go there with spices to anoint Jesus' dead body. Verse 2, there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. I don't know if you've seen Iron Man 2, but there's a, there's a point where Tony Stark is in his suit, and he's sitting on top of a donut, on top of a donut shop. And that's what I think. Like the, And he's chilling. And that's how I imagine the angel is. Just like chilling on the stone, like, it's done. This is joyful day. Let's party. I know a couple of ladies are going to come soon, and I'll get to talk to them. Like, that's what he's doing, just sitting on top of the stone that's rolled away. Verse 3, his appearance, the angels, was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him 
that they became like dead men. So God shakes the earth and sends an angel. The God who was silent on Friday is speaking very loud on Sunday. He gets the last word. He's answering here the questions of Jesus' disciples. He's even answering Jesus' question on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is doing something new. Matthew tells us that this is the first day of the week, but it's more than the first day of the week. This is the first day of a new world. The kingdom has come to earth. We're in the already but not yet stage, but the kingdom has showed up on earth in the resurrection of Jesus. And the angel comes to share the message. And really, as he's sitting on the stone, he's waiting to show the witnesses, what's in the tomb. And his radiant presence, like lightning, so bright, scares the Roman guards into passing out. Like they just fell out. They swooned. That's a good word for them. Just so scared, they just fall out. And so these ladies come up, and the soldiers are passed out, and an angel is sitting on the stone. When they wake up later, the guards... They go to the leaders, the officials, and say what had happened, and the leaders bribe them to say Jesus' body was stolen, which may be just as embarrassing as I passed out, I don't know what really happened. Some radiant, bright person made me fall out. Like you, a Roman soldier, you that been in war, yeah, we did. But they're bribed to lie and say that Jesus' body was stolen. And Matthew, later on, it's right after this passage, says that that's been happening since then. So when he writes this, he's saying people have been telling that lie since. Like, they're still doing it. That's a reality for us. People still say this. This is still pushback on the resurrection, that Jesus did not rise, but his body was stolen. But that means, if that's true, if like that's what you're actually going to hold on to, if that's the objection that you're going to hold on to to push back against the reality of Jesus' resurrection, you know what that means? That means... All the Roman guards all fell asleep, all at the same time, while the stone was rolled away, while his body was carried off. But if it was stolen, so even that, like, that just didn't make sense. They all fell asleep through the night? No. But even if it was stolen, like, how do you account for his body returning to vibrant, triumphant life? Or, I'll say it this way, if the disciples stole the body of Jesus then why lie for 40 years and die for a lie? Why be martyred for a lie? This is my favorite quote. It's from Charles Coulson. If you know Charles Coulson, he was involved in Watergate with President Nixon. If you're younger than me, uh, read a social studies book once in your life, okay? Just, I'm just kidding. I'll just tell you, it's epic scandal. But this is what he says. And he says it so uh, dogmatically. I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie 
for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Jesus' body came back to life. The resurrection is history. I mean, the theme of resurrection is even embedded. Like, we can see it right now. The, the theme of resurrection is embedded in our seasons. In autumn, the, the leaves fall. In winter, trees and grass and flowers die. But in the spring, they resurrect. <laughs> They resurrect. The resurrection is the history of the world, the start of a new world. That's what the angel proclaims. So see it in verse 5. This is what he tells them. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. So this messenger from God is not saying his body was slowly saying, no, he was dead. He was crucified, buried. But look at verse 6. He's not here. He's not here. Why? For he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. Jesus was buried after his crucifixion. He was risen. And the reality is, he tells them, you will see Jesus. You won't just have the evidence of an empty tomb. You'll have the evidence of Jesus in the flesh. Now, on Good Friday, two days ago, I told you that Jesus' death was substitutionary. Instead of Barabbas, the insurrectionist being crucified, Jesus is. And Barabbas, the murderer, the guilty one, is set free. And that's us. We're all Barabbas. The gospel is the good news of substitution. Because the truth is, we're all Barabbas. We're all guilty. We're in prison, prison to our sinful desires, in prison to what, what the Bible says in Ephesians 2 is under the domain of darkness, under uh, the prince of the power of air. We're in prison to our sin, and we're in prison to the devil, and we're in prison to the fear of death. We deserve to be judged and punished for our insurrection. You're like, no, not my insurrection. I'm not Barnabas. I'm not trying to overthrow anything. Yes, we've all, in our sin and in our sinful nature, we've all tried to overthrow God and supplant him as the one who sits on the throne, that we should be in his place. We should be the Lord of the world. We should be the one who gets to say what we do and what's right and what's good and what's wrong and, and when can I do this and uh, I can do whatever I want when I want all the time. That's what we want. We're insurrectionists. So we deserve punishment for our cosmic treason. Like, we're passionate zealots fighting for our autonomy against God. And we're heading to be judged. Not like Friday, not by a pilot, not by a mob, but by God Almighty. We will stand before him and hear his verdict on our life. Guilty. 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 Is there a pill process? No. It's done. Final. Guilty, which means what we all need is a substitute. Jesus in your place. Kids, if you're here on Friday, can you do it again? What is substitution? Jesus in my place. One more time, what is it? That's what we're talking about. You will not go free unless 
someone pays the penalty you have accrued. And this is God's rescue plan, to substitute himself for you, to forgive you and wash you clean of your guilt and shame. Isaiah 53 reveals substitution in a prophecy, and it says that Jesus will be pierced for our rebellion. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. We will be wounded. We will be healed by his wounds, punished for our sin. Although he was the only righteous, innocent man to ever live, he was counted among the rebels to save the rebels. So substitution equals Jesus in my place, but Isaiah doesn't finish there. It finish, uh, It adds this in verse 11 of Isaiah 53. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. Jesus, the prophecy is, after he dies for rebels in their place, he will see the light and be satisfied. Meaning, the Father accepts Jesus' perfect sacrifice for you in your place. And vindicates Jesus by rising him from the grave and pronouncing with this resurrection, this is the world's true Lord. Jesus. Now, in that, I, I have heard another regular pushback to the resurrection. And it, it comes down to these women witnessing Jesus and others witnessing Jesus. And it's this it's that people say that the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection all hallucinated his resurrection. Like they, they so desired for him to, to be resurrected that they projected it, made it up. And all had the same hallucination. One problem with that is the disciples didn't expect him to be resurrected. Like they still don't get it on Sunday morning, right? Like they hadn't got it before his death. They haven't figured it out now. They have to have someone like an angel reveal it to them. They thought of resurrection as the entire nation being resurrected at the end of days. Not one man in the middle of history. As well as he appeared to multiple people multiple times, even 500 people at one time. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. The reality is hallucinations are an individual experience, not a public one. Lee Strobel, I was going to make a Burning Man reference right there. I'm not going to do that. I've never been, but I was going to try. I'll just acknowledge it was terrible. Should have just kept it to myself. The investigative journalist Lee Strobel, he wrote this. I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. His friend said, hallucinations are an individual event. He said, if 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. The angel declared the truth. The disciples bore witness to it. And these two women listen to the angel and go to tell the other disciples. Quick note, you can't meet Jesus and not change. And you can't meet Jesus and not tell other people about Jesus. But look at verse 8. Departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Wow. If, if you want a good, concise definition of what it is to have the fear of the Lord, that phrase from the Old Testament, that's it right there. Great, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, 
Greetings. <laughs> they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them again, like the angel, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Jesus met them. Here's another pushback I, I've heard. And it's that, uh, you know, these witnesses all just lied and made it up. But do you understand the culture that's happening here? Women in this culture were not viable witnesses. They cannot be called to court. That's the culture. So it's ludicrous for Matthew and these other gospel writers to include that women were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. If they wanted to make up something, they wouldn't make that up. It just wouldn't pan out. It doesn't work for everyone else hearing this news. But Jesus meets them, and he greets them. And their response, I don't, I don't know what they said. We don't have it here. I don't know if they said, he said greetings. They're like, hello, Jesus, so good to see you. You know what they did? They worshiped. Just like the guards fell out in fear of the angel, these women fall out in worship of the Savior. Now, Jesus fits into a small, select group of people who founded a great world religion. Or like Aristotle set the, the course of human thought and life for centuries. And at the same time, he's in also in another small category. And this, this category is made up of human persons who have implicitly or explicitly said that they were God. They were divine beings or divine beings from other worlds. So that would be like the pharaohs in Egypt back in the day. That would be Caesar in Rome. Uh, others were leaders like small sects. So you can think about like David Koresh in the 90s in Waco. The, these are some of the people that have claimed to be divine beings. With the category of the Buddhas and Aristotles of the world, they've had great impact on millions of people because they were brilliant teachers and also because they had um, ad, like fantastic lives, fantastic character, admirable qualities, including humility. But the category of people who claimed to be God were able to convince just a small number of people that they were God, like Koresh. Because it's really hard to live such an extraordinary life that most people would be forced to conclude, you're not really just a human being, you're something else. There's something else going on here. But in these two categories, what? stay with me, are you tracking with me? In these two categories, there's only two people that really rise to the surface. Great teachers and, and people that claim to be God, and it's Jesus or Buddha. But the distinguishing characteristic between those, not the distinction, but a distinguishing characteristic of the two, is that Buddha did not claim to be God. He told people, I'm not God. Don't worship me as God. Do you know what Jesus did? He said, yes, worship me. Yes, I am God. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And these ladies fall out and worship him. And he says, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm just the teacher. No, he says, yeah, that's your rightful response. I'm alive. I'm the world's true Lord. Fall down and worship me. Jesus is the only person who is in both categories. 
not only a brilliant teacher who lived an admirable life in his character, but also claimed to be God. Buddha is still buried. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the only one worthy of going to for answers and for real rescue. He's the only one worthy of following with your whole life. He's the only one to worship Jesus alone. There's not many ways to God. The confrontation of the resurrection is that this is the one vindicated by God the Father, and you will come to the Father through this one, no one else. No one else has been vindicated like Jesus. No one else has been raised from the grave by the Father and proclaimed as the world's true Lord. Jesus alone is the one that you would fall out on your knees, humble yourself, grab his feet, and worship him. There's only one way to God. There's not many. But this way is not a rule to follow. It's a person to believe in. A person who changes your life and destiny, which, which just makes me think there's, there's three startling truths connected to this that I want to share with you. Three. Number one, like if you're still pushing back in your heart, or if you have those doubts as a Christian, you're kind of wrestling with this, I, I want you to hear these three startling truths about Jesus' resurrection so that you would be solidified. No, he's the way. I'm going to commit to him. I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to drift. I'm going to stay with Jesus for the rest of my life because he's staying with me. Number one, devout Jewish people begin to worship Jesus as God after the resurrection. Maybe that doesn't sound as intense as I hear it because maybe we don't all understand what's happening here. They're risking persecution and being kicked out of their families, they're, they're risking to be blasphemous. The Jewish people say, no, there's one God. There can be a man that claims to be God, and we're going to worship him, but they do. This group worships Jesus as God. This group includes his half-brothers, James and Judas, uh, uh, Jude, who thought he was a maniac in his life, in his ministry. They tell him one time, like, the dude's crazy. He's lost his mind. But you know what they do after his resurrection? They worship their half-brother as God. So much so that James becomes the pastor, one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem and holds on to the faith and dies for the faith, dies for believing and worshiping his half-brother Jesus because he holds on to the end. Why? He's not lying the whole time. He gives his life to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is alive right now, reigning and interceding for him. Number two, Jesus' disciples remain loyal to Jesus as their victorious Messiah. I mean, the truth is, a failed Messiah is, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. A failed Messiah gets left really quickly, right? People either uh, leave the cause, or they find another person to represent their cause. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense in our four-year voting cycles, right? When we all put our hope in one leader that's going to rescue America and make us the greatest nation again, and then they fell, and we're like, we don't talk about that person really much anymore. 
maybe there's a new person that still like uh, hammers home our cause and we'll, we'll go with them now. But these people stay loyal to Jesus as their victorious Messiah. They don't abandon the cause. They don't abandon the Messiah. They stay faithful to the rest of their life. And number three, worship change. The early church switched from gathering to worship on Saturdays, as devout Jewish people did, to start worshiping on Sundays to remember Jesus' resurrection. And again, just to be very clear, not only did the day change, but the object of worship changed. They worshiped Jesus as the one true God. With the proof of his resurrection and ascension. And what I'm saying is by his spirit, Jesus is present with us now. And I think saying the same thing. Greetings. I'm alive. Greetings. Death could not hold me. Greetings. The Father has vindicated me as the world's true Lord. The question then, though, is what will your response be? What will your response be? Will you lie to yourself and be bribed by some other leaders and turn away from Jesus? Or will you fall on your knees and worship Jesus? To be very clear, Jesus is not a leader, a great leader to be remembered. Jesus is God alive, the living God to be worshiped. That's who he is. The question is, what's your response to him this morning? This isn't a distant account, a myth, a legend, a farce, something to maybe just like, oh, this is good. It kind of instills some moral traits into my kids. Your kids don't, don't need just moral behavior. Your kids, at the end of the day, don't primarily need moral behavior. What they need is to be rescued by Jesus. They don't need to get a little bit better. They need to be made new, just like you. You need to be made new. You need to be resurrected, meaning you're dead in your sins. You need to be made alive. Jesus understands your weakness because he lived as a man. He understands your temptations. And he willingly became the sacrifice for our sin. And he powerfully rose from the grave to give you life, his very life. And he always lives to intercede for you. And if your objection is like, I I don't need a God or a demigod to rescue me. I don't really need rescue. I'm good. I want my autonomy. If that's you, can I just, can I walk with you to the logical conclusion of that thought process? The logical conclusion of that thought process is that you're deprived of genuine hope. Meaning you don't have real hope. If you're going to stiff arm Jesus in this and say, I don't really need a savior. I don't need someone to step in. I don't need a substitute. I'll figure this out by myself. You are deprived of genuine hope. Because most likely what you believe, any, any other thought system, religious system, there's not genuine hope. I'll speak of one. The secular hope now is for individual freedom to pursue our own private ideas of good and to discover our authentic selves. That's the secular hope now. The great story, or the great problem with that story is it doesn't do what every other worldview has sought to do in the past. 
and that's deal with death. This current worldview, the secular mindset, doesn't deal with death. You have nothing to do. Like, so there's nothing that rescues you from death, nothing that actually confronts death, not, nothing that, that is victorious over death. I mean, if you're honest, death is scary. And while living for yourself sounds good, it feels good, you know what it does? It isolates you from a story bigger than yourself, and we all long to be a part of a story bigger than ourselves. We do. And you can be. You can be a part of a story bigger than yourself. The story. You can be delivered from death through Christ because he rose from the grave and lives now. You can be part of the true story of the world that's bigger than you and I. You can get caught up in the story of God. And so, if you're not a Christian, I'm telling you, turn from your selfish sin and turn to Jesus. Believe in the good news of Jesus and worship now. That, that's what these three gals that are going to get baptized are about to tell you. They've met Jesus. They worship Jesus. They love Jesus because he sought them out and loved them first. No other person has claimed to be God and backed it up with verified evidence. I'll finish with the hip-hop artist Shailen. He's a Christian, so calm down. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle is dead. Immanuel Kant is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Hali Salazi are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. The question is, for all of us, what will our response to be to the Lord's greeting this morning? He's here showing you, revealing himself to you by his spirit that this isn't a myth, this isn't a farce. This is the true, genuine account of human history. This is the crux of human history. He was dead. He was buried. He rose again for you. How will you respond? I'm going to pray. Father, I ask for these men and women and children, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, work in them and lead them to respond to you and to follow you and to worship you right now. And then, Lord, I, I pray for these gals that are going to share their story. I ask that they would brag on you, not be concerned about what we think of them, but they get to testify and proclaim what you've done in their lives, what you've done for them. So I, I ask, Lord, that we would celebrate that 2,000 years ago you died and resurrected, and ever since you have been giving people new life. 
Would you do it more? Would you do it more, Lord? In Christ's name, amen.